Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. So if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It is towards the right hand of your Bible. And um, I I learned as a kid this little acronym, GEPC, General Electric Power Company. And that's how I learned Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. 1 Thessalonians is right after the power company. All right, so that's where it is if you need help finding that. A few weeks ago, my son, my second son was playing uh, basketball. I played a basketball game and won. He won his game and it was like nine to seven, something along uh, those guys. Whole, whole game, total of 16 points scored in that game. And it was exhausting, uh, not even just for the, the players, but also for the fans, the parents, right? If you played boys and girls club here in Conway, you know that that is a very heated venue, all right? Uh, the, everybody's really close together. It's very passionate. People make their passions known. And uh, that's what we were doing. We were cheering and we were all into the cheering and yelling and helping to coach our child and all that sort of stuff. And, and at one point, uh, I remember that we were even cheering for kids on the other team that finally made the shot, right? And so they finally got that shot and everybody went crazy, you know, because I don't know, it's just a fun environment. And we get done and I look over at Gael's dad and I said, that is the hardest nine points that I have ever seen earned, right? Because it was a full out hard effort to win uh, that game nine to seven. And there's a, there's a principle at play in a basketball game like that, or maybe some of the ones that you watched yesterday or something along those lines, is that if it weren't for the other team, that nine points would have been a lot easier. You know what I mean? If it weren't for those other players, that nine points would have come so much easier. That other team was doing these outrageous things, you know, like, like uh, playing defense and shooting the ball on their own goal, those sort of things, and getting away with a number of fouls that were not called, right? And so that's what that other team was doing. The opposition was in our way. And if they weren't there, then our kids would have scored those nine points without a problem at all. You ever feel like that in your life? Do you ever feel like if it were not for the opposition, if it were not for those other people that you would be, um, you'd have a pretty nice life if it weren't for other people, right? You know, how, how many of you are parents and you, and you think that your kids are willfully fighting you raising them in a good way, right? They are just defiantly fighting. You try to give them a nice meal, you know, and they are going to fight you over this thing or stuff like that. That's what kids do, you know? Or have you ever had a sneaky suspicion that your clients are trying their hardest to make this sale not go in their own favor. You're trying to help them out and they are standing in your way or a professor or a teacher that's trying to, to fail you. Any, any of y'all have a professor that's trying to fail you? They wake up thinking of thoughts on how to get you to drop that class. That is what, that's what gets them up in the morning. Or have you ever thought to yourself, your coach, right? If your coach would just get out of your way and let you play your game, you would not only win this game, you'd win the tournament. You would win the whole thing if they would just completely get out of your way. What about with your Christianity? What about with your Christianity, your faith? The way that you are supposed to live like Jesus. 
I believe, I believe that you would be, you, every one of you, would be the most God-honoring, Jesus-following, Holy Spirit-guided, Bible-living Christian if it weren't for all the yahoos that are in your life. All of these other people that are constantly pushing your boundaries and getting on your nerves and really kind of pushing you to the brink. If it were not for them, then you would be a great Christian, right? I mean, if it weren't for them, if it weren't for all these other people. At this part in Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is going to speak directly into that kind of setting. He's talking about when it's hard, when you have opposition, when there's another team working against you, when it's not just annoying, what to do in that circumstance. And he reminds them of two resources that they have. In fact, these two resources seem incredibly basic, but on further examination, they turn out to be exactly what we need and all that we need in order to make it through the opposition. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning from the text. But before we do, would you guys pray with me? Whether you're watching online, and thank you so much for watching online, or if you're in the room, you pray for me and I will pray for you. God, thank you for this group that has gathered, those who are setting aside time, watching online and tuning in, those that are here in the room. God, those who are gathering together in Greenbrier, that all of us collectively would come to the Word of God, that we would open our minds and our hearts to be challenged by your Word, that we would build our lives around your Word, knowing that we often face opposition, that there are all sorts of things in our lives, whether other people are intentionally against us or they are ignorantly against us, God, but we also have the opposition of our own hearts and our own minds that are so wayward. God, I pray in those dark moments, in those trying times, that we would remember that we have what we need and we have all that we need in order to make it through and to live a life worthy of God's calling. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 says this, For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without results. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. Verse 2 really kind of unpacks the setting or the background that Paul is writing into here. As he's writing to his friends in Thessalonica, he is mentioning that the context, the circumstances of this letter find them in opposition with other people against him. He says it like this. He says that we previously suffered and we were treated outrageously, that we had great opposition. There was this other team working against them. Now, to be clear, at this point, for the Thessalonian Christians, they are not facing death, all right? They're not having their assets stripped of them. They are not being beaten up, that sort of stuff. They are more so facing a cultural push against them. There are laws that are being passed. There are um, perspectives that are being taught and, and communicated in a way that they would have more of a, uh, a cultural or, or, a, or a hardships that are going on in their lives for the Thessalonians. Now, Paul himself, he did 
uh, get treated outrageously. He did personally suffer, particularly in Philippi. That was in the city that he was in before he went to Thessalonica. If you'll remember, that's when he was in prison. And, and uh, that's the story where he and his, his uh, co-prisoners were singing the gospel. They were singing songs and an earthquake came and they all freaked. So he was facing that sort of opposition. But at this point, the Thessalonians, they are facing sort of a cultural pushback, this general feeling that what they were about, Jesus as Lord, was not to be accepted. That it was to be thought of with uh, suspect and, and maybe looked at out of the corner of their eye. Now I want to be clear here. I am going to teach and explain 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 from the perspective of the Thessalonians, all right? The people receiving the letter. Pastor David is currently, right now, preaching this very same text from the perspective of Paul, the one who is writing the letter. And we really just take the opportunity this morning to bring that up because we have this resource. Many of you are very familiar with a resource called a podcast, but some of you may not be. It's, it's essentially where we take the audio from the two um, services and we load them onto the internet, all right? And you can go into services like Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and you can do what's called subscribe to that channel, all right? Subscription is free. You just click the button. And then every week, both sermons will be loaded up and delivered to you right on your phone, all right, okay? And so if you should want to listen back to this service, or if you want to listen to the other sermon, both of them are going to be beneficial and edifying for you and your walk. And so that's why we provide that. We also, it's a unique thing that a church would load both sermons on the same text in the same stream. And that's because like our small groups and that sort of stuff, we really want to sit in and soak in the same text each week. All of it. Just a bunch of different perspectives. Read it, small groups, that sort of stuff. So I want to point that out. Back to the Thessalonians. I don't want to cheapen their opposition or their persecution, right? Even though they're not getting beat up physically, right? They are still getting beat up emotionally and spiritually and, and sort of mentally. There's like this mind game that's going on in which they are constantly feeling as though what they are par uh, partaking in is somehow oppositional to the general good. And that we can relate to. We can relate to that a lot, right? Doesn't it seem like in our culture, in our world, every worldview except for Christianity is accepted? In fact, many of them are praised as being exemplary. And Christianity is spoken of in such a way that it would seem like that those who are adherents to the teachings of Jesus, those who follow Jesus of Nazareth, that those people are actually against the common good that their ideas are outdated or that they are even thought of um, suspiciously, like they are somehow trying to hurt, like we are somehow trying to hurt the general good or our children or the less fortunate within our community. And so in a very real way, as Paul is speaking to these people, they are hearing it in a similar culture, in a similar setting to that which we are hearing it. And so my hope today is that you would be uh, equipped, you'd be encouraged to make it through the opposition that you are currently facing, or you would be prepared to make it through whatever is about to come your way. So back to verse one, as I said there, um, or yeah, in verse one, he talks about the idea of that you would know that you would know. There are two things that Paul brings out to the front of how to make it through the opposition. 
The first one is what you know. And the second one is who you know. You see here he says, for you yourselves know. That is a major theme if you were to look at verses 1 through 12. Here's how it fleshes out. Verse 2 says, as you know. Verse 1 says, you know. 5 says, and you know. 9 says, you remember. 10, you are witnesses. And 11, as you know. Six times, Paul is sort of beating this drum or bringing up this um, theme that you know what you need to know. Now, specifically speaking, Paul is telling them that you know my character. Some of the people in Thessalonica who were Jewish followers, not Christian followers, they were trying to undermine the message of Paul by undermining Paul. So they were accusing him of all sorts of bad things. They were um, leveling some false accusations and those sort of things against him. And so Paul is responding to those accusations going, you know none of that's true. You know I loved you. You know I cared for you. You know what I taught was true. You know that that is consistent in your life. So very much there is this grounding in their faith by um, having trust or faith in the person who delivered the message to them. But these things that they know, these doctrines, these ideas, these things that they had learned from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy um, serve in a couple of different ways. They, they serve, first of all, to sort of center the Christian. As you're walking through your life and you're feeling opposition to things, when people say things like Christianity is, uh, is mean or it's heavy toward women or something like that, but you know that that's not true. You know that that's not consistent with what you've seen and what you've heard and, and those sort of things. And it helps you to center back as you get pulled in different directions. As Christianity is mean-spirited or is, is, um, is, uh, is hurtful towards people of different faiths and those sort of things. We know that these things are not true. They're not consistent. They help us to be re-centered on reality. It's not just that they help us to be centered but they also help us to be uh, motivated or encouraged. They also give us confidence that what we know is sufficient for what we need, right? You ever been in a conversation with somebody and you ask a question and their response to you, and this can be all sorts of topics, right? And their response to you is they say, oh, you know. They ever say, you ever heard that? You ever done that? Or is that just me? Maybe I, I do say that. Oh, you know. And the whole idea behind that is you know enough to know exactly what happened, right? You know enough to make a determination, to make a circumstance in this. I think Paul is in some of these saying, oh, you know. You know enough. You can be centered. You can be confident. Now, how do they get that knowledge? How do they get the things that they are supposed to know, the things that they are supposed to navigate? Well, they got them the same place we get them. They got them by reading like this letter, they got them by reading scripture, the Bible. That's how we learn the things of God. They also got them by experience. The same way that we learn things, they got them by experience. They also got them by example. We talked all last week about that they had become examples by being imitators of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. They learned what they needed to walk through this life and to face opposition and to be successful in opposition from following the leaders. They were like Jesus, and so others were like them. This knowledge is what they needed to make it through this life. One of the discounts of this type of knowledge, right? 
And at this point, I haven't really spelled out what the knowledge is. It's just basic Christianity. That's what I'm talking about. Just basic Christian beliefs. One of the discounts to this kind of knowledge or basing your life on basic Christianity is that sometimes people will say, well, you just learned that in Sunday school. That's like something you learned as a kid, right? The the idea is like, well, that's just a Sunday school answer. You ever heard anybody say something along that line? And they are disqualifying this thing that you picked up as a child that some of us, if you grew up in church, we picked up as children. But I really want to push back on that idea just for a second because I think at some point we sort of feel that way. Like this is just what I learned as a kindergartner or as a, as a third grader. Is it really strong enough to help me make it through the rest of my life? Are the things I learned in Sunday school as a child or my grandma taught me or just kind of picked up, are they, are they efficient to make it through the hardships of life? Well, here's the deal. I learned a lot of things as a kid that are still true. I learned a ton of things as a kid. I learned the difference between left and right. I learned my colors in when I was a kid. I also learned that if you walk in front of a swing set without looking both ways, that it hurts, right? I learned these things as a kid. I learned deeper things as a kid, as right, right? Not just basic things, I learned deeper things. I learned that words do hurt. I also learned that hugs can fix that. I learned that there is a massive difference between boys and girls and that I will never fully understand it. I learned that as a kid. I learned that half-truths are whole lies and that delayed obedience is full-on disobedience. These are things I learned as a kid. So if those things that I learned as a kid that are still true are still true, then I am just going to go ahead and assume that other things I learned as a kid are are also true. Like red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. That Jesus loves all the little children of the world. If you're scared, pray about it. That reading your Bible and praying every day will help you grow, grow, grow. That if you're tired, you're going to do things wrong. I learned all of that as a kid and I'm going to still kind of live my life on those. Just the fact that I learned them as a kid doesn't mean that they are disqualified. And I think that that's what Paul is saying, the basic things. Now, these Christians, these Thessalonians, they didn't grow up in Sunday school, right? There was no such thing as Sunday school until the Industrial Revolution. And so they didn't have that. They didn't grow up in that. They didn't have that. But what he's saying is the basic things that you know that are true, when you face opposition, just go back to those things. The way that I often like to say this is don't doubt in the dark what you know to be true in the light. When you can see clearly, if it's true there, it is true when you can't see clearly. And so these things that we learn in the Bible, we learn in worship gatherings, that we learn in small groups, they are true. They are what we need when life is oppositional towards us, when we feel like it is a challenge. Those are the things we need, but they're not always sufficient. They're not always all that we need. And what I mean by that is this. Sometimes you're going to get into difficult circumstances or someone you love is going to get into difficult circumstances. Like the sky gets really dark. It gets really scary. And it's not just like a little Bible verse. You can't just quote a Bible verse and make it all right. Right? 
Sometimes you'll go through a heartbreak or a loss or a pain, something that just exceeds our understanding. And in those circumstances, while, while the words, while the, the basic truths of Christianity are a medicine to our souls, what we really need in those moments is somebody, not something. We need others to walk with us. What we need in those circumstances is a family. Back to verse 1, he says, For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without effect. This is the other major theme in there. Not only does he say brothers and sisters in verse 2, but he also says it in verse 9. He calls them family. In verse 7, he refers to the work that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy did amongst them as the similar, gentle, like a nursing mother. Have you ever seen a, uh, a set of parents, right? They have a newborn and they are passing the newborn off to an older sibling, but the older sibling's not old, right? It's like a toddler or, or like, a, like a, you know, like a kid, right? You've experienced this, right? So, the, so you've got the, the newborn and you know you're supposed to do this, right? It's healthy or something. They got a bond. They got to like each other, right? And so you sit them there. It's usually in the hospital. You sit them there and you like put like pillows all around them and pillows on the ground. And you're, you're passing them off. And I think for all of the history of the English language, every parent has said the same word. Gentle, gentle. They say it so ungently, right? You know, it's like, be gentle with this, okay? Or I'll kill you, right? And so you hand that. And you go, what's your head? What's your head? You know, that sort of stuff. You know, don't poke that. You know, those kind of things, you know. Gentle is the way in which Paul says that they were uh, with these people. They were kind to them. They were gentle. Also, he says in verse 11 that they were, what do you call it? Like if you look in your, with your eyes, look at verse 11. It says, I, like a father, I was encouraging you and I was also inspiring you. Th those kind of words, encouraging and inspiring. I feel like this is like when you're a dad and you're coaching, you know, when you're a dad and you're coaching, that's super hard. I'm not talking about like you're the actual coach. I'm talking about like you're sitting on the bleacher coaching. It's super hard. You're supposed to be encouraging and you want them to feel encouraged. They did a good job, but you've got like a million things that if they would just do these, they would be far better. And if the coach would listen to you, you know, this whole thing would go better. But you know, that's not your spot, right? You're, I'm supposed to be encouraging, 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 but why did you do that? You know, that sort of thing. That's how he says to them. He says, not only were we encouraging, but we also inspired you. We also pulled you forward. So Paul struck this really great balance between like a gentle mom, an inspiring, doting father, and a brother and a sister. Because like I said, sometimes the situation is going to get to you where the answer is not like the answer to a crossword problem or a math word problem. It's not cognitive it's relational. What we need is someone else to walk with us through these circumstances. And that can get messy. That can get really messy. If you are in family, you realize that if you have like a, a, a biological family or an adoptive family or something like that, you realize that family is messy. There are all sorts of circumstances as like a husband and a wife or as a, a parent and a child, there are all sorts of circumstances that we don't talk about in public, but are gross. They're messy, right? And you willingly put yourself in those circumstances that are gross, 
that you would not put yourself in those circumstances with any other living uh, person in the planet, right? You know what I'm talking about? You know the kind of general direction I'm going in all of this, yeah? We do that. I do that as a dad. I will put myself in situations that I, I was cleaning the boy's toilet yesterday, okay? It's disgusting, all right? I won't do that at your house, right? I don't care about your toilet at all, but I put myself in that situation because I'm a dad, because family. Family will walk through the messy with one another because we are family. You will walk through those sort of circumstances with one another because they are messy. When life gets hard, when you face opposition, I will walk with you through that even though it's going to be messy with me as well because we are family. And this isn't just theory. This is the way that our church, Second Baptist, is set up. This is the whole sort of backbone behind what we do. We do this because we believe in this. We think that in environments like this, you would come in here and you would learn, that you would um, understand the circumstances and the context in which Paul is speaking, that it's relatable and that the words that he's using are, are building an argument that points towards Christ and towards the glory of God and walking worthy of God, like it says in verse 12, um, uh, participating in the kingdom that he has called us toward, towards in this way, what we know and who we know. That we would learn the, uh, the prophecies of Daniel in such a way that God is sovereign or the world in which Ezekiel spoke into that God has has a plan, that we would learn all of this, and then that you would go into smaller groups where you would experience family, and you would walk with one another, and that you would be vulnerable, and that they would be vulnerable, and that's how this would all work out, that it's not just what you know in here, but it's also who you know in those small groups that is going to help you walk through this life. There's a pastor in Atlanta named Hottie. Dehati Lewis says this, of all the word pictures and metaphors used to describe the church, one stands out above the rest, family. In fact, it is so much of the essence of the church that it cannot even properly be called a metaphor. Metaphors describe what the church is like or similar to. Light, flock, field, building, but family is not metaphorical. It is a literal description of the phenomena we know as church. The church is not like family. It is family. God is literally our father. Jesus is literally our elder brother. And we are literally brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family. I think out of all of the verses in this text, verse 8 really sums up the the heartbeat behind what Paul is saying. He says, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel, the good news of Jesus, knowing of God, but also our own lives. That we were willing to share, walk with one another in what we know and you are who we know. Why? Because you had become dear to us. We cared so much for you. You were dear to us. So we shared in what we know. We shared in who we are. To make it through the oppositions, the bad, the treated unfairly, this is how it goes. Four times in this text, 1 through 12, Paul uses the word gospel, which means good news. Finally, in verse, um, in verse 12, he unpacks that, that this walking worthy in what we know and what we do, who calls you into his own kingdom who calls you in to be a part of his kingdom. This is the gospel message that you do face 
opposition out there in the world, but Jesus has invited you, has called you, has, has welcomed you into his kingdom so that he is what we know. He is who we know. That he is the one that will walk with us in and through oppositions. That this is the gospel message. And that it is an open invitation. So if you haven't yet accepted Jesus as your savior, as your true king, that this invitation is for you. To trust Jesus today, the walking through these annoyances of this world are far worth it as we trust Jesus as our Savior. So here's what I think the application is in this text. This is really what I think that we should do. We need to be open. We need to be open in a number of ways. The first one is to be open to learn. We are so prone to just assume we know. We know, right? We know enough. There's nothing else for me to learn. And I'm telling you, no matter how long you have been in church, If you've just started church, I'm telling you this. Those of us who have been in church for nearly 40 years and those who have been in church for even longer than that still don't know everything. There is no way to... So we need to be open to learn. We need to come with new minds and hearts to be challenged. We need to be open to learn. We need to be open to struggle. We need to be willing to tell our friends, to tell our small group that this is the place where I struggle. This is the place that I need your help. This is my messy. Look, we, uh, I don't think that you should introduce yourself that way. I don't think you should walk up and say, hey, my name is Josh and I struggle with pride. You know, something like that. But maybe layer it into a friendship or a conversation, those sort of things. And I'm talking about the moments in your life where you are particularly struggling with those things. It should not be wrong or uncommon for you to express to your small group this whole um, gas prices thing, it's got me nervous. I'm finding out I'm exposed in a way that I, have, I put more security in things being steady. I put more security in finances. And, and when that's threatened, even a little bit, I begin to get um, on edge. I get angry, those sort of things. This is, this is the way that we're supposed to be open to struggle, to learn, and then we need to be open to help. Look, if you're letting other people know where you struggle and they let you know where you struggle and then you run away, you're like, hey, here's my problems. And they're like, man, I'm praying with you for that. Let me walk you through that. And then, and then they say, well, here's my problems. And you just bail because you're like, ah, I can't deal with that. I got enough stuff on my own. I, gotta, I can't be dealing with your stuff. Or worse, worse, that somebody confesses something to you and you then believe or act like they are so dirty that they are no longer worthy of your perfect friendship. We need to be open to walk with people through their mess. To just say, look, this is what I believe. This is, and, and if people come into this church and they don't believe exactly what I believe, if people come into this church and they're not yet fully formed mature Christians and they have ideas that are foreign to Christianity, We don't exclude them. We don't push them away. We don't stiff arm them. We don't change what we believe and we stand firmly on what we believe and we teach that truth with grace because we're willing to help people learn and develop and go forward. So we need to be open to learn, to struggle and to help. Uh, When I first got my truck, there was this little console thing. If you drive an F-150, you know what I'm talking about. In the middle console, there's this tray. 
And it, and it just kind of hangs in there. And it can slide back and forth so you can get underneath it. And it's got these two like ridges or lips on it um, that will hold it up, right? Well, because I live in a town called Conway, I regularly go around what's called a roundabout. And as I would drive, that tray would slide, all right? And it really got on my nerves. And so I, I would drive and I would hear it go, uh, every, every roundabout just drove me crazy. And if I would turn to the right, it would slide back over. And I know right now you're thinking, how fast were you going? Fast enough to make that tray slide, all right? So that's what I was doing. It's a new truck I wanted to see. So it would just slide around. So I came up with this idea I thought was pretty genius was if I put rubber bands around the edge of the tray, right? These two little lifts. If I put rubber bands around that, it will create enough friction that it won't slide. And I did. And it was it worked perfect, all right? But it was ugly. You know the color of rubber bands and my black interior? I didn't like that. So I needed black rubber bands. So I went on a search to try to find black rubber bands. I went to all the stores. I asked people, hey, you got black rubber bands by chance? And everybody looked at me like I was foolish. Found some on Amazon, and it turns out that you cannot buy two rubber bands on Amazon. I ended up with a bag of 350 rubber bands. It was the cheapest amount that I could find. And so I had these 350 rubber bands and I put them on my truck and it worked perfectly and it looked great, right? So no more sliding around. But now I have 348 rubber bands and I was looking around for things and there's all sorts of solutions around your house if you, if you look for them, like your bag of chips, right? You get done with chips, you roll it up, you put a black rubber band around that, boom, perfect, like that. We bought an air filter, a new air filter for the air conditioning unit, you know, and when the unit would turn on, it would, it would go up, and then when it would turn off, it would fall. Four rubber bands, knock that thing right out. It's perfect, clean. Any sort of wires that need organizing, black rubber bands will fix that thing right up. I was looking for stuff everywhere where, where, where my black rubber bands would fix it. I really did believe it, and it looked sharp too, right? Well, one day I go to the drawer to get from my stash of rubber bands and they are gone. Every rubber band was gone. Turns out Jackie gave away my bag of black rubber bands. She gave them to Operation Christmas Child so they could wrap Christmas gifts for, for the kids in the shoeboxes. I threw a fit and she didn't care. I mean, I was trying to explain to her that even though right now I don't have a particular need for 300 black rubber bands, you never know what might happen where you need a black rubber band, right? You never know. You don't know these sort of things. And they just gave it away. Paul is making a very similar argument. Because sometimes life is going to, you know, slide out of control. It's going to lift you up and smack you down. It's going to get stale and unfresh. It's going to make noise that you don't want it to make. It's going to get cluttered and unorganized. And what you need, even though you don't know right now, but what you'll need at that point is a couple of black rubber bands. And so what Paul is saying is in your life, when it gets that way, when it gets you, just go back to what you know. It's all about what you know and who you know. When you are in this church, when we look at this Bible, this is what we know. When you look around at your church, this is who you know. And no matter what it is around the corner that we don't yet know, that's enough. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. 
To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.